This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. Almost everyone out there is hoping that there's some kind of return to normal by August, September. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We're here each and every week for you at the same time talking to the biggest names in sports. I'm Jason Kelly along with Mike Lynch. Today we're speaking with D.C. United co-chairman and CEO Jason Levian. So, Jason, so much going on, so much to talk to you about. Uh, I guess let's start we're going to see some soccer before too long. How excited are you? Honestly, it's hard to believe. Uh, it's been a long time coming, uh, but very excited. Our guys are very pumped. Uh, we've been cleared in, in Washington to do uh, full team training, um, which was a long time coming. We were doing individual training and some group training, but now we're back doing full team training. So uh, everyone's pretty jazzed. Jason, what do you think of this format here? It, it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, the World Cup format or uh, the Olympic ho- ice hockey format. You play a little uh, round robin with, uh, I think you're in there with New England, Montreal, and Toronto, and then uh, 16 survivors go to a knockout round. I think it's great. I think it's really cool. I think I like the way they set it up. Um, I think every every team is going to get a, you know at least three matches in, um, and uh, the stakes are high. Um, getting out of that group, you know, certainly getting out, getting out of your group is going to be important. Um, for your fans and, and for morale around the team after the long layoff. Um, so uh, I think it's a really cool format, and I think uh, it's going to lead to some exciting play. And um, I really like that we're getting going. I think it's fortunate we're getting going earlier than some of the other U.S. leagues. So uh, we'll have an opportunity to really showcase the league, uh, you know, and the talent, the excitement around the league and, and, the, and the, the play uh, to, to fans and also hopefully some new fans as well. So, Jason, as you mentioned, you know, different sports, certainly at very different places at this moment, given your intimate knowledge, not only of soccer, but also of the NBA, assuming that the NBA does get it all sorted out and get going here. uh, What made it possible for those sports to get it across the finish line versus, say, where we are with Major League Baseball? Well, I I think it's a variety of factors. Um, I think, you know, the Certainly, the, the league relationship with its players' association is, is important. Um, there's so much uncertainty right now um, in, in terms of health and safety, and in terms of what's best, you know, sort of best process to to, to ensure those things, and also, um, you know, what works from a pragmatic standpoint. And I think that you know, while while there's a lot of similarities between pro sports teams and. Uh, their structure and their leagues and their relationship with their players. Uh, there are also differences and nuances. And so I think certainly those have come into play. You know, I've been following uh, what's going on in other sports, not just in the U.S., but, but around the world. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to understand sort of what's, what's working and what's not working in terms of the dialogue uh, to try to get everyone on the same page. So I, I think it's a real credit to our ownership, to our commissioner, 
uh, and our league and, and also our players. There's a lot of passion around the sport of soccer and a lot of momentum in the United States, certainly. And I can tell you from talking to the guys who are leading the effort for D.C. United, but also the player reps in MLS for other teams, um, there is a real excitement and desire to, to sort of get out there and, and figure out a way to play um, with health and safety, obviously, at the forefront of, of anything they were going to do. Jason, I want to follow up on that. What are the logistics that uh, that are being laid out in terms of uh, uh, hotel? How many uh, members are of, of DC United, and uh, in addition to uh, players, coaches, staff, etc.? Um, how far apart are the lockers, etc., uh, etc.? Et tell me all the things that are going to be different this time around. Well, that's interesting because you know it's a little bit of a moving target. You know, in other words, some of the protocols, the things that were understood by experts. Um, may have been different in late April than they were in late May and, and into June um, as to what works and what doesn't work. Um, and um, that's something that's taken a lot of time. And so I think that, you know, I know that the league hired uh, an expert group of medical professionals um, with infectious disease expertise to sort of weigh in on this. And uh, the leadership in our league, including Joanne Neal, who's our chief administrative officer, uh, really spent a ton of time understanding that, understanding what was going to be most important safety-wise from social distancing to uh, you know, the teams together. I can tell you this, we're going to have 40 to 45 uh, members of our team, players, staff, and, and, and coaches uh, in Orlando. Um, and originally we thought we were going to have to go down almost a month ahead of time, uh, but now we've been cleared to practice in our home market. So um, that's, that's great. It's great for our, our players to have more time at home. It's great for our coaches. Um, so now teams are going, some teams are going down early, but I think the majority of teams are going down a week before uh, the tournament begins on July 8th. Economically, Jason, what does this mean for the the league and maybe specifically for for your team, or is it more symbolic than economic? How do you break that down? I think that, you know, if you look at the economics in the short term, uh, we're certainly a league, and I've been involved in the NBA, I've been involved in, in soccer, you know, in, in the U.K., um, in the Premier League level, um, we're certainly a league that um, I don't think it's a secret that right now our receipts, our tickets, our sponsorship, our day of game revenue exceeds our media rights. Um, and that's not necessarily the case in some other leagues like the Premier League. So, uh, you know, not having fans uh, all being in one location um, without, without a fan base there, um, you know, without the, the revenue for selling tickets and day of game purchases, merchandise, um, and uh, food and beverage, that's, that's real limiting in some ways. Um, but I, I think the bigger picture is, is what our league was focused on, um, which is that we've got so much momentum behind the sport of soccer in the United States, um, so much power behind that, that and, and so much invested in its success. And I think we're looking at this and saying, we think we've got a terrific product that's only gotten better. Uh, certainly, I think the product has improved and the excitement around it has improved in the eight years that I've been involved in Major League Soccer, uh, let alone the 25 years that, that the league's been around. And I think we looked at it and said, we want to get our product in front of not only our fan base, as I said, but the nation and the world, um, and do it as soon as possible in a safe way. So, you know, the economics behind that are, can we capture more market share? Can we get more people excited about resuming our play? And I think we've got the wind at our back um, in terms of the, 
the interest level in Major League Soccer uh, over the past decade and certainly over the last few years. Um, but this is a key, the key moment for us to showcase uh, the league um, and to showcase the, the competition um, and the excitement behind that. So that, that's, I think that's how we looked at it more than just, um, you know, uh, I guess blocking and tackling in terms of short-term revenue. Um, but there are revenue opportunities because we're going to have the eyes of the nation and the world uh, looking at us. Um, and there's certainly corporate partners that want to be a part of that. Um, and, uh, and that's been interesting to see since we announced uh, that we're having this tournament, um, since we've gotten the buy-in from our players and our league and our, and our coaches, um, we've gotten inbound calls uh, from companies that want to participate, uh, that want exposure to the competition. And, and I think that's a testament to the league. It's a testament to the growth of soccer. I also think it's a testament to the dearth of live sporting events right now yeah. um, and, and the opportunity before us. So, Jason, right there in the backyard of your team, the city where you live, uh, it has been a, a pretty phenomenal and at times scary time. Uh, help us understand it from the perspective of an owner, a businessman, someone who cares about your city, cares about your players. This is a complicated issue. Uh, I do wonder how you approach it. Um, well, listen, I think, I think the pandemic has uh, certainly made this a scary time. Um, I think that what's gone on from a social justice and, and uh, you know, racial injustice perspective, um, you know, around police brutality, around systemic racism, is an opportunity. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's something that I, I, I think uh, has, a, has a chance to not only galvanize our city and our community right now, but I'm really hopeful that it's going to do a lot more than that in terms of implementing uh, some real change moving forward around the country. And so, um, you know, this was a conversation that's been had, but, but I think not, to, certainly not to the level and the extent that it needed to be had. Um, and and it, it's certainly a crisis moment. Um, but but with that crisis comes this opportunity. And so, you know, I've been dialoguing and listening to our players and our front office staff um, and people in our community uh, around issues of racial injustice, uh, police issues. Um, and I've learned a lot. And, and I continue to, to, to reach out and learn more about it. And I think our club um, as a community has really come together um, in, in a very positive way. And so I feel... You know, I, I feel a lot of warmth and excitement that, that, and hopefulness that uh, this can generate some real change that I think is, is critically needed in our society and, and, and hit a real tipping point over the past few weeks. Jason, following up on the, the word you keep using is opportunity, and I think that's a great word that applies to your, your sport right now. And for some of these nights when you're on the MLS network, you're going to be the only game in town. Are there any innovations you're going to try to add to the sport? I know golf tried to put a wireless microphone on, on a couple of the golfers uh, this weekend just to attract some of those peripheral fans that you know may become permanent fans. Here's a great opportunity right now to, to get some of these stray sheep to, to come back uh, or somebody that, that really is sort of on the fence about following uh, Major League Soccer. That's a great. That's a great point. We're spending a lot of time and investment and resources on the broadcast, um, on the camera angles, um, on the interaction between the players, the coaches, and those watching to, to bring them closer to the action. And that's happening in real time right now for the reasons that you said. One of the interesting things I will tell you is that you know 
as we study the sport of soccer um, in the United States, uh, what we realized is that there are 80 million soccer fans in the U.S. People are really passionate about the sport. Um, so the opportunity is not just to convert fans of other sports to soccer. I think the biggest opportunity is take those soccer fans and make them passionate about Major League Soccer. Some of them love Liga Mex. Some of them love the Premier League or Bundesliga. Um, and, and this is our U.S. Soccer League, Major League Soccer. And I think a lot of our growth potential is getting those fans to, to fall in love, if they haven't already, uh, with, with the great competition in Major League Soccer. So, yes, in terms of the opportunity, it's in front of us uh, moving into um, this tournament. Um, and beyond. Um, and I, I, as I said, I think we have a lot of momentum. You know, I've been so bullish on the league um, in terms of the, the, the caliber of players, the caliber of ownership that's come in the league in the last eight years, um, even the folks in the league level who've joined the league. I think it's really taken, gone to a new level. Um, but this is, is a lightning in a bottle opportunity in front of us, this tournament, um, and the opportunity to sort of capture uh, people's attention in a way that we haven't before. Jason, talk to us about what has gone on in Washington, especially around your fan base, but also the physical plant of Audi Field. I mean, this was a big deal. I went to college in Washington, and I can tell you that back in the 90s, not a lot of folks were excited to go to the part of town where now is a vibrant uh, area, owing in part to to some of the things that that you have done. Help us understand, again, some of the economics of that, the bets that you made and and how much they've paid off already or, or you're still waiting to pay off. That's it. That's it. This is a great point. I, so I went to college at, at Georgetown, uh, and I was here in the early 90s. And, yes, the, you know, Buzzard Point, the waterfront was not an area you really wanted to set foot in um, unless you were you're up to no good. <laughs> it was empty. Um, there wasn't a lot happening. Um, so it, it changed a lot. But when we got involved with the team in 2012 was when I first invested you know, we had a big decision to make. I, you know, I knew that the team was not going to thrive at RFK. Right. And that was, you know, we needed to turn the page and find a, a, a new solution. Um, and I knew that the number one thing we were going to do um, was going to be making the determination as to where we were going to build a stadium and how we were going to get that done. And, you know, I reached out certainly to the, the, the mayor's office, uh, Vincent Gray was the mayor at the time, but Muriel Bowser is the mayor now. She was on the council and very much a leader on the council. Um, and we looked for locations. Um, and, you know, Buzzard Point was an area that came up. Um, there was an, another area across the river called Poplar Point, mm-hmm. which is on the other side of the Anacostia River. Wasn't quite as convenient. Um, but we really zeroed in on this location because it was near Nats Park. And, you know, if you had enough vision, even eight years ago, you could see that the neighborhood was going to take off. You know, the wharf was coming. We're wedged between the wharf and the Navy Yards. And you could kind of see that there was some momentum uh, for growth there, although no one knew how long it was going to take. We also looked and talked with, you know, I spent time talking to the governor and the Maryland Stadium Authority about our opportunities in Maryland and uh, to Governor McAuliffe um, and his predecessor in Virginia about opportunities there. Um, I I think we made the determination that – the long-term value of D.C. United um, and its impact in the community was going to be much greater if we had an urban location. Yeah. Um, and that was a hard decision because, and the reason I bring it up is because 
it would have been a lot easier from a political standpoint, from a financial standpoint, um, to locate the stadium somewhere in Maryland or Virginia. Um, there's more land available. Uh, it was a little less complicated uh, in terms of getting a deal done. Uh, there's public financing available there um, that is different in its structure than it would be in the District of Columbia. Um, that being said, I think what gave us the most confidence about D.C. was, was certainly, number one, um, the location, which we loved. Uh, but number two was the commitment, and you can see the passion and the energy uh, from Mayor Bowser um, and her team, um, and Mayor Gray before and his team, and also the council members that really wanted to see this happen. And, you know, had we not had a committed partner on the other side that said, listen, we're going to do what's best for the District of Columbia and its residents, but, you know, part of that is bringing you guys into the mix and finding a solution for you. Uh, if we didn't have that committed partner, I think I would have had to have looked elsewhere. Um, but we, we locked arms, and, and certainly there was a lot of back and forth about the terms, which were fair, and about the timing, um, and who was going to pay for what, um, and how we were going to get this deal done. But, but a real public-private partnership came together. Um, and in the middle of that, I just to point out, we had a change in mayor. As I said, we had Mayor right. Bowser going from the council to the mayor's office, and she brought in a new administrative team, and she brought in some great people. Um, and uh, I think uh, Vincent Gray had terrific people on his team as well, but anytime you have new, new leadership come in, um, they took a fresh look at our deal and uh, had to make sure it was, it was good for the district and good for, for everyone involved, and so that took time. Um, and I would say that persistence and patience uh, were really important in, in getting something like this done to put a stadium downtown. And, and you talk about the economics of it, um, I think it's a game changer for us from, in terms of having real estate in the fastest growing neighborhood in Washington, um, which wasn't the case when you and I were there 25 plus years ago. Um, but, you know, this area is booming. It's going to be uh, the most densely populated area in the next 10 years in Washington. Um, it's a lot of young professionals who are living in the area, but it's a real diverse group uh, of people. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's changed our business. It's changed our ability to connect with fans in D.C. It's changed or it's added new fans. Um, you know, we were a club that was a legacy club that was started in 1996 and with a great core fan base. Uh, but what we needed to do was keep that core fan base and treat them really well, but also expand it um, generationally and just around the district. And I think we've done that being at Audi Field. We sort of put ourselves, put a stamp on the, uh, on, on the club, uh, that it was going in a new direction, um, and that and we embraced new people that way and new fans. And so from an economic standpoint, that's, that's sort of been the driver. Uh, we brought on a lot of new corporate partners, you know, uh, folks like Audi, who've been an awesome partner, you know, really weren't excited about partnering with us at RFK Stadium for understandable reasons. Uh, the building was, you know, 50-plus years old, and there wasn't that opportunity to activate or the neighborhood around it or the newness of a, a stadium where we could, you know, uh, have, uh, have premium seating and have different kinds of experiences for fans. Um, so that was a big thing. We brought on Eagle Bank. We brought in other partners as well um, that are really critical to our business. So all of that, is, I guess, is to say that we've, you know, quadrupled our season ticket holder numbers. Um, which is a great thing. Um, we've got a long way to go. Uh, we see this as the beginning uh, of the process for us in terms of growing our business and becoming even more relevant and having a bigger impact uh, on the DMV. 
you know, I think that's a great idea to get to get into an urban area, get people to use tr public transportation uh, to get to get to your event, and also to downsize these stadiums. Now, I'm up here in Boston, the Revolution play at Gillette Stadium, 68,000. They could get 30,000 people, which is a heck of a crowd, but, you know, the upper deck, they've got to put canvas on there, so it doesn't feel like... They're playing in front of a capacity crowd. But when you get it, you know, you build a made-for-soccer stadium with a capacity of 30,000, 35,000, you know, it's an intimate sport. The people feel closer and more connected to the players. And, and, and I think that was just an ingenious move by you. And I, 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 I do you see more teams like the Revs or somebody trying to get an urban location and downsizing their stadium, making it solely for soccer? I think so. I think it's coming in Boston. I really do. And I think one of the things that – Major League Soccer needs to get right um, that it's working hard at is some of the bigger markets uh, around the country where you could have the biggest impact. Um, you know, need either new stadiums or have challenges around where their stadium location is that need work. Um, and I know that the league is very dedicated to focusing on that. You know, for example, not just Boston, but Chicago. Uh, the, the stadium they had played at prior to this last year uh, was outside the city in, in, in Bridgeview. Um, they've now moved it to downtown to play at Soldier Field. And while Soldier Field is a much larger venue, being in downtown Chicago in a great sports town like Boston is, Chicago is, um, I think you connect with a fan base in a different way. But I, I would venture to say you're, you're right that, you know, the next several years of Major League Soccer, you're going to see teams like the Rev, the Revs and also the Fire in soccer-specific stadiums, you know, in urban areas. Because I think that's, that's going to be a real key to the growth of the league and in those markets, the, the growth of their fan base. So, Jason, before we let you go, got to ask you, you know, you have a fascinating career as an athlete, a lawyer, uh, involved in a number of different sports. What else is on the horizon for you? You're a young guy, and I do wonder, uh, you know, what, what the next big uh, project is. Is it a different sport? I know you've gotten involved in the premiership as well, so you're very uh, dedicated to soccer at the moment. But what, what sort of strikes you as a big growth area as you look around in sports? Well, I, I'll say I have um, I spent 15 to 20 years uh, focused on basketball, which was yeah. my first love. Uh, you know, I was an agent representing players. Um, I, uh, you know, then went into the front office of a couple of teams and then put investment groups together to buy and, and ultimately wound up running the Grizzlings after I put a group together to buy that team. Um, the last eight years, um, I've been all in on soccer. When I saw the opportunity at DC United, I jumped at it. I um, certainly got involved in the Premier League as well and in, in the championship in, in England in soccer. Um, I, I believe that in terms of live sporting events and live sports, I really love where basketball and where soccer is positioned because of the little d democratic nature of the sports, uh, because of the international connectivity and growth. Um, and I think there's a lot of upside there. And so, you know, I'm starting my ninth season at DC United and for me, this is a real passion. This is something that I think um, has the opportunity to, to grow tremendously, even from where it is. I've seen the growth of the last eight or nine years, but I think the next nine years, as we get towards the 2026 World Cup, um, where the U.S. is going to be a host country, um, I think you're going to see even a, a greater spike in interest uh, around the sport and around the league. So I'm very focused on that. Um, I, I see that as a big part of my career and my career legacy and the things that I'm doing. Um, and, I, and I love the District of Columbia. It's, it's been a great place for me. As I said, I was a college student in, in Washington here. Um, and being a part of D.C. United's 
sort of growth trajectory to the next level uh, is something that means a lot to me. So beyond that, I, I don't, I'm not really sure. I, I wake up every day loving what I'm doing. I love being a part of the team. The, the, I work, talk to our general manager, our coach, you know, every day. Uh, I speak to my ownership partner, uh, Steve Kaplan, on a daily basis, uh, and our business team here in Washington. So uh, I spend a lot of time on that, and I really enjoy it. Um, and I enjoy the other investments I've made in sports. Um, but, but as you pointed out, I think soccer and basketball are, are the areas where um, I've had the most experience and, and the most knowledge and, and, and think there's still a lot of growth uh, in both of them. Well, two sports that uh, seem to be ascendant uh, at the moment, and it feels like it's not an accident that those are the two that we're able to sort of pull it together and uh, hopefully get to Orlando. And we'll be talking to you, uh, I hope, as all of this goes on. Jason Levy, and thank you so much, D.C. United co-chairman and CEO. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lynchy, really interesting guy. I'm sure you like me you read up on his background i mean you know this yeah. is a guy played some college ball uh, actually transferred from georgetown went to pomona so he could play and you know kind of works his way through the agent world and he's a deal maker ultimately and was involved in the sixers then the grizzlies and now this seems to be where he where he's really focused hard to bet against him well what really stood out for me is something he didn't say but i found out and i'm sure you found out in your research that when he was with the memphis grizzlies they were ranked the number one pro sports franchise in North America. The yeah. Memphis Grizzlies right. over the Dallas Cowboys, over the uh, New, New York, York Yankee. Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Memphis uh, Grizzlies. I, I said it so you wouldn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it still hurts. Uh, I know, I know. No, really interesting. I mean, and that I think under his watch they made the uh, the Western Conference Finals. The Grizzlies did. So yeah, yes. really interesting yeah. guy. And and listen, the and we I was glad we got a chance to talk to him about it too. The the choice to put that stadium where they did in D.C., yes. which I'm sure uh, you know yep. as well as I do, was bold, to say the least. Absolutely. It's a big risk. Uh, it could have been a bomb. It could have been a disaster. But it worked out, and I think it's a model for future teams. All these teams that are playing in these football stadiums, uh, it, it, outside of, of urban areas, I think the way that MLS is going to succeed is a smaller venue, in the middle of a city, and he's yeah. got the perfect model. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one to watch for sure. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me on Twitter at WCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.